I'm Kayla Ogden, and this is Better for the Boy. A couple of updates to start off the podcast. The first being Cheerleader Camp. In episode two, I told you about the cover of the VHS video for this old movie that I used to gawk at when I was a little kid at the video store. I did watch the movie. Congratulations, 10-year-old Kayla. You grew up and you watched the dirty movie inside the titillating box. I'll let you know my thoughts on Cheerleader Camp at the end of this episode. Secondly, you know how I'm always referring to where I live as Silicon Valley? If you're from here, you might be wondering, what is up with that? People who live here don't rock around like Silicon Valley this and Silicon Valley that. We call San Francisco SF or the city or San Francisco, but never San Fran or Frisco. We call Oakland, Berkeley area, the East Bay. The whole thing is the Bay Area. A lot of big tech companies campuses where people work are 40-ish miles south of San Francisco in cities like Mountain View and Menlo Park. The peninsula or South Bay is what I would call where I live. It's the suburbs closer to a lot of the big tech company campuses. So why do I keep referring to it as Silicon Valley? The term has to do with tech and tech is why I'm here. Most of my friends work at or have connections to Facebook, Google, Apple, etc., etc. While there are people in the area whose families have lived here for generations, the same people are getting squeezed and pushed out of their spaces as programmers and tech executives crash through their doors and windows like quickly growing Jumanji jungle vines. While my husband and I try to dig a little hole and plant little seeds here and there, we try to get some roots to take hold. We unearth and clear out what to us sometimes looks like weeds. Simply put, I keep referring to where I live as Silicon Valley just to reinforce the importance and influence of the large tech companies in my life. By the way, no, we're not like the Big Bang Theory. We hate that shit. I've never watched it, but I can just tell. I don't know if we're like the HBO show Silicon Valley because I haven't watched it either and really have no interest. Living here is quite enough. Thank you. Being a good person is really hard, you guys. Last week I went to Hawaii for the first time and I brought my husband, my baby, and a bunch of friends with me. Remember last episode when I was saying that I'm really down with the Gandhi line, be the change you want to see in the world, like lead by example, that type of thing? Well, if the world followed the example that I set in Hawaii last week, All the polar ice caps would melt that day and it would be Armageddon. First, we flew in a plane from San Francisco to Oahu. In other words, I took part in a lot of jet fuel burning. Then we got to the car rental place and I decided to get a white Jeep Cherokee. I climbed up into the SUV and turned the radio on. I was the king of the road. What's a G-Wagon? I wondered. Is this my G-Wagon? Then it was so fucking hot, so we turned the air conditioner on in blast as we cruised toward our vacation rental. Once we got to the house we rented, we immediately found all the air conditioning units and turned them all the way up. I think we just left them running around the clock so that the house would be cool whenever we were in. Then we went to the farmer's market, and when I ordered my iced coffee, I poo-pooed the straw. I was like, oh, no thank you. No straw for me, but thanks. I don't use those. No, 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 none for me. Then when we were walking home from the farmer's market, some friends wanted Jamba Juice. Yes, I wanted a Jamba Juice. Always. 
I ordered a medium and it was massive. And as I walked down the street, sucking and chatting, I realized I was using a goddamn straw. And I didn't even want to drink the, the two thirds of it that were left. I was so full from the delicious artisan pasta bolognese I had at the market. So now I was walking beside Indra on our way back from the farmer's market, and I told her about my fuck up. She's an environmental engineer and also an information junkie. She knows a lot of interesting facts about a lot of things. Fuck, I took a straw, I said, dejected, and I don't even want this drink. Now I have a cup and a lid and a straw and a drink I'm not even enjoying. Indra said, yeah, and the crazy part is that if that cup isn't recycled properly, it's going to be around for the next thousand years. I said, so this cup is going to be on earth, taking up space for 10 times longer than my life expectancy, a thousand fucking years, just because I thought I wanted this dumb drink that I didn't even want. Yep, she said, and that's nothing. You know the plane we took to get here? That plane, taxiing out on the runway for about 15 minutes, burns more fuel than an average car does in a whole year. Before it even takes off to get anywhere, it's burning like five liters per second. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to use these dumb cups. I'm, I'm going to stop, I stated, feeling upset. Indra said, we just need to make our disposable products out of compostable materials. It costs more to do so, so people don't do it. I thought of the G-Wagon, the air conditioning, the flats of plastic water bottles we as a group were burning through faster than Joey Chestnut takes down a plate of hot dogs. I felt the Jamba Juice cup sweating in my greedy hand and angrily wished I could just throw it into traffic. I'd throw it into traffic and it would travel through a time portal to later that evening and hit the windshield of my own stupid white Jeep Cherokee rental as I drove to the 7-Eleven to pick up cigarettes. That's the thing about trying to be a good person all of a sudden and starting from scratch. I have to start somewhere, but I find myself being wildly inconsistent. For example, I wanted to go to a luau because I'd never done that. I'd never been to Hawaii before. And it turned out that the luau had been, that the one that we had had on the table for plans, was at a place where they had dolphins in captivity doing tricks and shit for our entertainment. And I was like, no, dolphins are so smart. They communicate and have fun and enjoy sex and they shouldn't be trapped in there flipping and flipping and flipping in an endless loop. They were made for more than that shit and were evil for doing that to them. But that morning, I had eaten more than my fair share of the bacon at our communal breakfast, and pigs are hella smart. Winston Churchill has a lot of great quotes, and one of them that I love is, I am fond of pigs. Dogs look up to us. Cats look down on us. Pigs treat us as equals. Have you all heard about the connections between Buddhist teachings and evolutionary psychology? I find the intersection of these fields fascinating. One of the super useful ideas is that our brains didn't evolve for our lifestyles in this day and age. So that means a lot of our instincts can be counter to our actual experiences. If we can recognize these unhelpful biological reactions for what they are through medication, meditation rather in some cases, we can overcome them and experience the modern world in a more peaceful and realistic way. Buddhist philosophy recognizes the tension like 2,500 years ago. And a lot of the recommended practices and perspectives that the Buddha taught are like the antidote to modern frustration and anxiety. So for example, like I get really stressed out whenever I leave the house. 
This is a behavior that my mom exhibits too. As I'm about to leave, I fly around the apartment, gathering up my belongings, talking to myself rapidly. Keys, 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 keys. Where are the keys? What else do I need? I just have to pee real quick and then I'll... This is especially true when I'm going out to a social situation where I'll encounter other people. I'm sort of an anxious wreck. Why is my brain jacking up the tension? I live in a safe neighborhood. I'm not even discriminated against based on my appearance. Yes, I'm a woman and I'm treated differently from men. But when I'm leaving the house to go grab groceries from Whole Foods, which is just a short jaunt from my abode, I'm not in any danger. And yet, there's a kind of panicky energy. It's completely useless. It's a waste. This is what Joe Rogan called leftover monkey shit in his special Talking Monkeys in Space from 2009. He had a bit about how we follow the alpha male, and it's some leftover monkey shit. He jokes about how scientists had mapped out the human genome and discovered that we share 96% of our DNA with chimpanzees. He's like, if someone made you a sandwich and it was 96% shit and 4% ham, would you be willing to say that that's a ham sandwich? I looked it up and it's actually we share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Joe Rogan was like, and I'm paraphrasing, people don't, he, he's like, just because you're a monkey doesn't mean that there's no God. He said, I think God made a bunch of monkeys who don't like to think that they're monkeys and lie a lot. Joe Rogan is not overrated. I'm not like a avid listener to his podcast generally, and I'm not sure that I would agree with all of his positions. I think he might have some problematic things to say about feminism, for example, but I am a fan. So that's kind of what I'm going to be getting into this leftover monkey shit. You know how the human species evolved over millions of years? So like six million years ago, we were ape-like. And then around four million years ago, we started walking on two legs. There were millions of transformations that happened, which took us from the chimpanzee thing we were before to the superhumans we are now. The fittest humans survived and went on to pass their genes on to the next generations. Each generation keeps getting better and better, and more shitty genes get eliminated from the human race. That's why people need to stop fucking Donald Trump's progeny. Here's the thing, though. Our societies have changed way faster than natural selection can change our bodies and brains. There was the printing press in 1439, which allowed people to be educated. Knowledge should be documented, spread, saved, built upon. Wisdom could be passed on. Then the telescope was invented in 1608. In 1796, the vaccine was invented. Refrigeration in 1834. Electricity in 1879. The automobile in 1885, the airplane in 1903, the transistor in 1947, the internet in 1983. All of these technological advances happened in a relatively short span of time, and it wasn't that long ago. But natural selection doesn't work that quickly when it comes to like evolutionary permutations. Um, to our biology you know what I'm saying so like it's not like natural selection is like oh Kayla lives across the street from Whole Foods and um, there's refrigeration and everything and she has lots of money so how about when she's hungry we don't make it so that she's also angry and her stomach hurts and stuff because it's not that big of a deal we don't need to be sending all of these crazy messages to her brain so our instincts and emotions are still better suited for hunter-gatherer societies that existed like 12,000 and 11,000 years ago. Despite the generations of breeding out certain genes 
we still had so much the same bodies and the same brains as the hunter-gatherer people. The point being, we have a lot of responses better suited to a completely, totally, incredibly different lifestyle. Fight or flight, for example. Sometimes we have the strong physiological urge to fight or flee in modern situations that don't call for it at all. Like you're drunk and someone knocks shoulders with you as you pass each other on the street. Oh, time to rip out their throat, I guess, you think. And then now there's someone larger than you walking towards you on the sidewalk. And they're a different ethnicity than you. They're from a different tribe. Oh, I guess I should run as fast as I can and as far away as I can immediately. Our sexual impulses are also better suited for different times. People whose sex is biologically male want to spread their seed all around, especially during adolescence. In modern life, however, having six babies with six different mamas before you blow out your 16 candles would be uh, encumbering, to say the least. But teenage years is when the uh, most males are at their horniest and most virile. Energetically, they can go for miles. They're biologically driven to fuck everyone, especially someone who smells like they're ovulating. This simply will not do in the modern age. Remember my cup of jamba juice I was talking about earlier? Heads up, it ties back in now. If a human being ate a berry or a nice piece of fire-roasted catfish back in the hunter-gatherer days and felt completely content for days or even an hour, they're like, I got my fish, yay. And that feeling of contentment and satiation stuck around for longer than like a beat, we would not be here today. We eat our delicious food and then crave something else. Dessert maybe, an aperitif, some water to wash it down. What's next? We're sleepy. We must find a place to sleep. What will we eat next? Is there anything for breakfast in the house? Must go back out and hunt. Must go forage. Must attract mate. Just fucked. Now I want to chat, chat, chat to someone else or roll away from the person I mated with and stick it in someone else. Must create nest for offspring. Must be alpha. I can't get no satisfaction. So apropos of the Rolling Stones. And later Britney Spears covered it. Look it up. It's good good in a dry humpy kind of way. Here's a side note that I just wanted to sneak in somewhere. Um, Have you read that book or heard about Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality by Dr. Christopher Ryan? I haven't read it, but I've heard Dan Savage talk about it a jillion times on Savage Lovecast. In the book, Dr. Ryan says that humans are not naturally monogamous. He says that a lot of what we think was our great ancestors mating habits is based on the mind of a huge prude, Darwin. Darwin was like, the woman was faithful to the man because he wouldn't take care of the child and devote his resources to the survival of her and her kid if he didn't know for sure that the baby was genetically his own. So to prove the child was of his genetics, the woman was faithful. But then, controversially, Dr. Ryan is like, no, I don't think so. From what I gather, the theory in Sex at Dawn is that the hunter-gatherer communities would do this thing where when a woman was ovulating, she would have sex with all the men in the group. Each man would take his turn while like the others all watched. This way, no one would know who the father of the baby was, and the men would communally provide through hunting, protection, or whatever for all of the women and children in the group because they had fucked all the women and any one of the children could be theirs. Some of the evidence he points to, I think, is the competitive nature of sperm, 
Uh, He says, this is the reason why men naturally orgasm and ejaculate quickly while it takes the woman a long time to orgasm. Because, like, he has to get it, like, get it over with and she has to endure, like, all these dicks. He talks about how men are very visual and they become aroused from watching people have sex, like how they all like watch porn, for example. This is because they had to stand there and watch while all their buddies got it on with the woman they wanted to get it on with. So this is an interesting theory, and I think he has a lot of other things that he points to that uh, supposedly support it. I don't, I don't know. That's not really what I'm talking about. I just wanted to mention it. Um, do you think we're naturally monogamous? Does monogamy feel natural to you? Moving on. I chose to drive the Jeep Cherokee in Hawaii. I was excited when I was handed the keys. I felt proud as I stepped up into the machine. I was peacocking, showing my pretty feathers. Come hither, mates. Women, gather round and witness your alpha. My offspring will survive this day, tucked away in this giant tank. These emotions quickly subsided. Psychologists call it the hedonic treadmill which is the observed tendency of humans to quickly return to a relatively neutral level of contentedness despite major positive or negative events or life changes. Now it was time for us to rove to our new home. We were nomads in a strange land. We must gather nutrients. We must search the terrain for our whole foods en route. In this modern day, in my reality, I don't want any men to come hither. I already have my mate, and we've chosen to have a monogamous, lifelong partnership, and that works well for us in our habitat. Also, what do I care if random women in Hawaii think that I'm a sexy baller? I'm not here to find a tribe to help get a baby out of my birth canal and wrap the baby up in fur and nurse it on their teats if I die in childbirth. No, but my ancestors had to think about stuff like that all the time in order to survive in their landscape and pass their genes on to the next generation. I wasn't conscious of any of my motivations for choosing this vehicle beyond, that's a sick ride, and oh good, all of our shit fits in here. But I think, as Joe Rogan put it, there could have been some leftover monkey shit going on there. Do I meditate? I do, yeah. I think it helps with the cravings. It helps me see things in a trippier, more unusual way. I started going to a thing called Dharma Friends on Sunday nights, sometimes at this place called Insight Meditation Center. I started doing this uh, before I I started trying to be a good person. I was just curious. It's a group for people in their 20s and 30s. We meditate together and then split up into small groups and have these deep and meaningful conversations. One person talks for as long as they want, and the other two or three people are supposed to just listen mindfully and, like, stare at them. I really like going. It gives me some of whatever I liked about church, but everything is just chill and real and doesn't pretend that there's no science. There's been a few times where I kind of felt like the secular asshole of the crew, though, the unenlightened one. The thing about Buddhism is they don't really care if you become a Buddhist or not. The guy that usually leads the group's name is Max, and whenever he isn't there, it really bums me out. The Max replacements are nice and wise too, but Max is just my dude. There was a replacement Max there last time I came, and the replacement Max, um, he asked us if anyone wanted to share why they came. No one said anything for so long, and then so finally I said, 
hi, like I see meditation as a way to kind of like level up, like taking the red pill in the matrix. There's nothing wrong with just going through your days, experience the world as it is, as it presents itself. I mean, indulging one craving after another until you die, like it's of no consequence. But if you want, you can level up with meditation and begin to see your feelings for what they really are. Some people kind of nodded. Others looked thoughtful. No one seemed to have like a fuck yeah expression on their face. I forgot to say the whole part about our leftover monkey shit and the hunter-gatherer instincts that like we were leveling up above. Then later in small groups, this dude was like, no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. It's just usually with Buddhist meditation, we're not like striving for anything, you know, like trying to get to the next level or be above anything or anyone. But no, no, you're fine. I was like, fuck, of course, I knew that. But for me, I only care about what the Buddha said as far as it lines up with science and reality and is useful in the modern day. Like, if Buddha had the best watermelon cutting knife, I'd use that knife to cut my watermelon. But I wouldn't wear an orange robe and shave my head while I did it. Dang, I have so much to say about meditation, but I also want to be consistent with the length of these episodes. Um... Have you heard about TM? It's the type of meditation all the celebrities do, like Howard Stern, Lena Dunham, Paul McCartney, etc., etc. So next time, I will tell you guys the super protected secret to TM, Transcendental Meditation, that you aren't supposed to learn unless you spend $1,500 getting the TM people to teach it to you. But I figured it out, and I'll tell you all about it next time. So how could meditating make the world a better place? I think if through meditation, people grew less attached to their emotions, their cravings, their things and their identities, they'd have an easier time being generous. Easy come, easy go. Maybe team humanity and team planet Earth could be more important than team me or team white people or team liberals or team men or whatever other kinds of teams we like to be on. This excogitation will lead to some action for me though. You probably think I'm going to quit smoking and drinking in the evening after my son goes to sleep, right? Okay guys, calm down. Calm the fuck down. Just listen. I'm going to get off the hedonistic treadmill with clothing. Often I'll buy clothing uh, at fast fashion outlets like H&M, Forever 21, Target, TJ Maxx, fancier places occasionally. I don't really need any more clothes, and when I do, I'm just going to buy whatever I can at thrift stores because those clothes are already here. No further resources required. People of Earth, you no longer need to produce new clothing for me. I no longer need to fund whatever the fuck is going on here with the fashion industry, except for underwear and socks and shoes because thrift store, gross. Otherwise, I feel like this is a pretty easy way to be more mindful, better to the planet, and better for the boy. You guys, without the printing press, how the fuck would I know any of this shit? I've learned so much on these topics from writings by Sam Harris, Jill Fronsdale, Robert Wright, Christopher Hitchens, David Foster Wallace, and others. It astounds me that humans have scoured the earth and our minds to uncover our past through fossils and stuff, to invent, to look into the sky and discover the universe. 
while at the same time knowingly filling the biodome with carbon, heating up the planet and causing tsunamis, tornadoes, fires, and flooding. We feed our children wholesome, nutritious, organic food and then drive them to school in a Hummer. Triumph and apathy, imagination and calamity, compassion and torture. Each of us can go either way in all the choices that we make. And I was content to think that none of it mattered just because we appear so small from a distance and there's no one larger looking out for us. My little life matters while it's happening. And there's a few of us here right now who are small enough and close enough to see all the detail and beauty about my life. I'll try to make it beautiful for me, those who know me and my son. One last quote. This one from possibly my favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut. I urge you to please notice when you are happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Here's a quick review of Cheerleader Camp. Okay, so I really enjoy scary movies. A recent favorite being Midsummer, a sophomore feature film effort by Ari Aster. He also did Hereditary, which was haunting as fuck. I couldn't get through the first time because it shows a child die horrifically. And it shows her mother, played by the amazing Tony Collette, who, by the way, I would watch cut her toenails. She's so goddamn interesting. It shows her grieving the loss of her child. She actually finds the girl in the film. Anyways, I tried to watch it for the first time when my son was sleeping and he was like two weeks old and I could hardly breathe. Ari Aster, the writer and director of the new Midsummer and the older Hereditary, is especially adept at creating realistic, though totally imagined, religious or cultish traditions from rituals to props and clothing. It's amazing. If I were younger and cooler, I would watch Midsummer with a bunch of friends and we would all dress up like the Swedish pagan cult members. But alas, I don't know, maybe I'll come up with a killer mummy baby costume like I could be a zombie and he could be a zombie baby or something or something better. He still doesn't get to choose to be like Superman or Paw Patrol or whatever, so I should take advantage. Cheerleader camp. How was it? Did I get to see the cheerleader's entire boobs finally after all these years? Yes. I gave the boobs 10 out of 10 and the movie 1 out of 10. The one is for the boobs, of course. The entire movie is up on YouTube for free, so go ahead and watch it if you really like bad, not scary horror movies from the 80s with no sympathetic characters. But be warned, the boobs only make a brief appearance in the first quarter of the film. So don't keep on watching for more of that. Now, to cap off this episode, I'll leave you with a definition. Let's expand our vocabulary so that we can express ourselves more accurately and sound as smart as we know we are. This episode's word is the noun, dharma. In Buddhism, the nature of reality regarded as a universal truth taught by the Buddha, the teaching of Buddhism. Remember to listen to the next episode when it drops on Wednesday, October 2nd. I'll tell you the $1,500 TM meditation secret. Thanks for listening and sharing. I'm Kayla Ogden, and this has been Better for the Boy. Yeah.